0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of EcoBusiness. Today's session is coming to you from the SDG Collaborative in Singapore. And we're going to talk about a sector that never fails to stir the emotions. Palm oil. Versatile, cheap and efficient, palm oil is the most widely used vegetable oil in the world. But is also linked to environmental and social problems in the tropical countries where it is grown. Today we're going to discuss... Some of the popular perceptions about palm oil and ask, how real are these perceptions? I'm joined by Anita Neville, Vice President of Corporate Communications and Sustainability Relations at palm oil company Golden Agri Resources, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Anita joined Golden Agri from Sustainable Forestry Nonprofit Rainforest Alliance in 2016. Also joining us is Cynthia Morell, Senior Sustainability Strategist for Nonprofit Forum for the Future. Cynthia joined Forum a year ago from UNICEF. She is currently working on a project with palm oil growers to ensure fair labour across their supply chains. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to discuss five so-called myths about palm oil and I'm going to give you about three minutes each to talk about each one. The first so-called myth about palm oil is that it is unhealthy. Um, palm oil is said to be high in saturated fat, and some studies have linked palm oil with cancer. Anita, what's your take on this so-called myth?
1: Thanks, Robin. Um, first of all, I think it's really important for people to understand that when we talk about palm oil and we talk about it in food and in health terms, <clears throat> most people in the world aren't eating palm oil in its entirety. They're eating a fraction or a portion of palm oil. So when you talk about palm oil being unhealthy or palm oil causing cancer, we really need to start with what are people actually eating and consuming on a regular basis and what are the attributes of that part of palm oil? To look at the whole product, sort of raw palm oil or crude palm oil, it's actually an incredibly healthy uh, ingredient along with its other amazing properties. And it has a much more concentrated source of energy than some other vegetable oils. If we take uh, the current trend fat, coconut oil, for example, uh, coconut oil, butter, cocoa butter, for example, these all have high proportions of saturated fats. And in comparison, palm oil, which can do a lot of the same jobs when we apply it in food and nutrition, actually has a lower level of saturated fats than those very popular and commonly used oils. So it's really about understanding the basics of the product. There are other good reasons to consume uh, palm oil in your diet. It's very high in uh, carotenoids. Uh, it has uh, a lot of the antioxidant vitamin E. About 70% of the vitamin E in palm oil occurs as what are called tocotrienols. Enols, which is hard to say, uh, basically helps neutralize free radicals, those things that cause aging, for example. So it has a lot of um, values in terms of protecting brain and heart health. It's low in cholesterol. It's also largely trans fat free. And doesn't need to be hydrogenated like other vegetable oils do and these are all characteristics that can make it a very healthy choice that said like all things we should be eating in moderation so it shouldn't be a no palm oil but it should be about how do you include palm oil in a generally healthy and balanced diet
0: Right. so on to the next so-called myth um, cynthia i'd like you to go first with this one Um, the palm oil industry causes deforestation. Now I've seen data that uh, shows that palm oil plantations cover 27 million hectares of the Earth's surface. And some data also that palm oil is the biggest single cause of deforestation globally. Um, But what's your take on this, that palm oil causes deforestation?
2: Right, well, I'd say that the problem of deforestation is immensely complex and any solution around it requires a systemic approach. I'll begin with the fact that palm oil is actually not the principal source of deforestation. Uh, It might well have been for some time, but it isn't now. Um, On a global basis, clearing forest either for grazing livestock or for growing the feed that livestock needs is far more serious of a problem uh, for conversion of forests, up to 10 times more serious according to some estimates. Uh, and if you then consider that palm oil is harvested all year round, oil palm trees produce on average ten times a fruit per hectare, which is far more than soya, rapeseed, and sunflower cl- crops. Uh, this means that oil palm requires ten times less land than other of the, the other three major oil-producing crops. Um, it's then possible to address deforestation, or it's not possible to address it without addressing the critical issue of land tenure and security. Uh, which makes it difficult for smallholders to access financing required to buy good quality inputs, which in turn is essential for producing higher yields. Um, Higher yields, of course, reduce the need to burn more forest over time to maintain those yields. Um, And of course, the difficulties in accessing financing for smallholders extends way beyond just the palm oil sector. Um, There's also the difficulty for smallholders to access uh, adequate training in good agricultural practices, which again is uh, a to higher yields and maybe the need to burn more forest. Um, land tenure and security is also underpinned and/ or exacerbated by a number of related governance and accountability issues. So if you look at the issue of overlapping concessions, um, when three entities claim have the same claim over a certain piece of land, who do you hold accountable when it's been burned? Um, The Indonesian government is trying to take steps to remedy that through the One Map initiative, but it's still a long road ahead in terms of really implementing it. So I come back to my point about it being a a problem that is systemic and really requires a holistic approach, and that's why FORUM works with palm oil companies through the Decent Rural Living Initiative to improve broader livelihoods around the sector, uh, and that we're constructively trying to support the Indonesian national strategy in promoting decent work. Um, FORM is also working to launch an initiative called the Protein Challenge across the region, uh, where the aim is to rebalance consumption of animal, plant and alternative proteins uh, in order to reduce uh, water use and pollution and also uh, mitigate issues around land use change and habitat loss. Um, So this requires the bringing together of unlikely bedfellows, looking at relationships and levers uh, that can bring about transformational change. Uh, And that's our business.
0: Okay, on to myth three. Palm oil companies use child labour and exploit workers. Um, Companies um, such as Gar and Wilma have tried to tackle uh, child labour in recent years. Um, A recent Amnesty International report shows that it's still a problem. Anita, over to you on this one. Palm oil companies use child labour and exploit workers.
1: So, any time you're talking about (coughs) labour conditions... uh, in supply chains. It's always very difficult to be able to demonstrate compliance with regulation. Uh, Labor and social issues are inevitably hidden and more difficult to audit for and to look into. But there are a few things that we also need to watch that we don't do, uh, and that is making assumptions that all children on farms are being exploited in some way and the example i would give is when i was growing up i worked on my grandmother's property in uh, southwest queensland every holiday that i was sent there now was i exploited or was i doing chores and this is very common across the developed world (coughs) that kids help out on farms so one of the key criteria we need to use when looking at the role of children in plantations and in farming communities is Do they have access to education? Are they going to school or are they being restricted from or prevented from going to school because they are being required to work and is that requirement to work in order to support their family income on a family farm or in a more actually exploited way. And I think this is an important uh, aspect. Companies like GAR have very strict requirements. Our minimum employment age is 18 years. Uh, We prevent uh, child labour through a range of different practices, including, you know, quality control in our own estates, but providing access to childcare centres for early learning years, for example, so that Women don't feel they have to take their children with them to work. They can put them in a safe place where they can get an education, they can play with other kids, they can have their childhood. That's really important to us, being able to provide schools uh, and access to education through scholarships, (coughs) also an important contribution that we feel we can make in order to eliminate children in the workforce. I think it's also important that, again, we look at the different areas in which palm oil is grown and the different risks associated with labour conditions as a result. So, for example, Malaysia does have uh, still a legacy of forced or bonded labour as a result of the need for migrant labour in their uh, workforce. It's very different to the realities in Indonesia. So let's not paint everybody with the same brush, but let's really focus on the root causes. And that's one of the reasons that GAR, with others, is working with Forum for the future to look at what a decent rural living actually looks like and how do we enable that sector-wide.
0: And now, Cynthia, this is very much dead centre of of what you're working on now. Um, What's your take, um, Myth3, that that palm oil companies use child labour and exploit workers?
2: Well, I mean, I'd start with the fact that a number of reputable organisations have identified this as a problem, so it's really important to take heed of that. But now that it's firmly on the agenda, I think really a productive way forward is to adopt, um, for example, UNICEF's approach, which is looking very carefully at the drivers of child labor. uh, And this is one that's been adopted by Form for the Future as well. Um, Anita touched on the issue of access to education, and that's one effectively one of the major drivers if there's an absence of that. So a good number of companies within the sector proactively help support primary education on the plantations themselves. Uh, leaders within the sector are going one step forward, or for, uh, further by providing transportation to g- junior and secondary schools. So in that respect, 12 uh, year olds are not at loose ends uh, and therefore not going into work or falling into work. And the gold star really within the sector are the companies offering bursaries to children who are reaching a certain academic standard. And, and that's really promoting a race to the top where I've seen it happen. Um, again, I think that the Decent Rural Living Initiative is, is proactive in trying to grapple with some of these underlying issues. Uh, that's a, an initiative that encompasses Cargill, Golden Agri, Musim Sam Darby and Wilmar. And so some of the issues that we're looking at together is the issue of precarious employment, wages, access to alternative livelihoods and improved uh, ICT connectivity. Um, I think that one of the key things that we're looking at within that ni- initiative is really making sure that workers and their families have real choices. And so this touches on Anita's point um, that, you know, they're, they're, if kids are perhaps helping out a bit after school or during holidays, it's, it's really just as a form of maybe learning about the value of work or just accompanying their parents, but not because they need that money or that assistance to meet quotas or, or to sustain their livelihoods. Um, And I think that, you know, especially the market leaders are definitely looking uh, to do everything to avoid any form of child labor that goes against the ILO or RSPO standards or definition of that work. Um, But again, I think that we need to look at this also through the cultural lens a bit, again, touching on Anita's point that um, you know, some children coming, if they're not exposed to any of the harmful aspects of the work, just having a look or accompanying their parents, especially in a context where childcare might not be available, the alternative might be child neglect. So it's, it's not kind of a white or black issue. Uh, you need to kind of look at, with, look at it within its wider context.
0: Interesting take. Um, so onto myth four, um, palm oil certification is failing. Now, RSPO, the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil, is um, almost 15 years old, but some of the problems associated with the palm oil trade, deforestation, child labor that we've discussed already haven't gone away. So Cynthia, uh, if you could tackle this one first, palm oil certification is failing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a fair characterization. I think that certification is a valuable tool for helping move the sector forward by signposting agreed benchmarks. Um, I think the problem starts when you look at it as basically a one-stop solution uh, relied on, you know, in isolation of other me- me- measures. Um, there's another, a number of reasons why you need to look at the broader picture, um, because certification, if you looked at it as they want, you know, as a silver bullet, um, has too few labor inspectors to carry out the work in a systemic or meaningful way. Um, there's also a good number of inspectors that are insufficiently trained to identify the underlying factors relating to child labor or forced labor. Um, in addition to these challenges, I think you have to ask yourself the question of, you know, how do you attract more companies and smallholders into the fold when there's already more certified palm being produced and then sold as such? Um, and this speaks to the broader market imperatives and, again, to the importance of taking a systemic approach uh, to the problem. Um, I think that's all I'll say. For
0: that. Okay, yeah, Anita, your go. Well, oh, at, the- all certification.
2: <laughs> at the risk of uh, sounding
1: like an echo, to Cynthia, Um, I tend to agree (coughs) that it speaks more to, I think, a a misconception or a misplaced sense of what certification is intended to do than to whether or not the certification (coughs) has a meaningful role to play. And by that, I mean... We do need to stop, as Cynthia said, seeing certification as a silver bullet. It's a tool. It's a means to an end. It shouldn't be the end in itself. And by the nature of the way these standard systems are developed with the various different components, economic, environmental, social, all coming to the table to try and agree, there is always a lag in where the standards will be versus where, say, the market or where you know, the drive for sustainability expects us to be. So that we have to anticipate or expect that there will be some of these tensions in the discussion. That said, I think 20% of global production being certified to RSPO standards is certainly better than nothing being certified because then you have no benchmark to indicate whether improvement is taking place. We do need to look at more adaptive and uh, innovative ways to address some of the things that are much harder to audit, like labour conditions, um, where those kinds (laughs) of abuses can be hidden. And this is true not just in palm oil. I've worked across multiple commodity certifications, and this is true across all of them. We also need to look at the willingness of the market to pay or to contribute their pull factor to make certification attractive, particularly to smaller players. Uh, And at the moment, that is failing not again, not just in palm oil certification, but across the board in sustainability certifications, you're seeing buyers demanding sustainability metrics be met, but not willing to pay an additional premium in order to ensure that they are met. So we need to look at what is the shared responsibility across the supply chain to drive change. Um, And to think about what other vehicles exist in order to demonstrate progress, particularly for smallholder farmers for whom Current certification models tend to be quite onerous in both Mm -hmm. the documentation and reporting requirements, and then the cost of auditing. So I think there's opportunity for change. RSPo is currently undergoing uh, a principles and criteria review. I think that process is very important, (coughs) dynamic in the standard system world. But we shouldn't throw babies out with bathwater. You know, certification is better than nothing. Can it continuously improve? Absolutely. Is that part of the hallmark of certification systems? Yes. Do we also need to explore other ways in which we can demonstrate compliance with the kinds of standards, social and environmental, that we'd like to see in the industry? Absolutely. And I think there is innovation coming down the track that will help us do that.
0: Okay. So certification, not perfect, but still essential um, in leading us down the right path to uh, sustainability. Right. Fifth and final myth. The palm oil trade will be dead in 25 years. Um, now, I've read uh, a number of reports recently that about peatland subsidence and um, flooding that could render um, peatlands unfarmable in 25 years. And in fact, I, I read a stat that 98% of plantations on peat will be unfarmable by the end of the century. Now, Anita, I'd like you to take this one first.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I think that all the time that human beings need vegetable oil in their diet or in their daily life, there will be palm oil in some way, shape or form. And certainly at Golden Agri Resources, we're quite fortunate. We have a very small proportion of our estate that's on peat. And so this isn't a massive challenge for us, but it's still an important one for us to assess and to consider. Um, and I think there are a number of different factors. I've seen the same statistics that you've seen, but I think that there are developments in um that will see changes in the way that we are able to grow peat. And I think actually at most risk is uh, the potential for new development, which is thankfully halted anyway. So for those people who already planted on peat, the question is how do we actually move them out of peat over time? And that's the conversation that the Indonesian government has triggered through its peatland rehabilitation agency and its peat moratorium. As I was saying, for Gar, not a huge challenge to us, still an important thing for us to reflect on and look at because we don't have a lot of estates on peat and we're not on any domes, peat domes. Peat tends to be in sort of these dome um, constructs. Uh, But for smallholders, I think that's where the real challenge lies. Uh, a lot of smallholders have developed on peat not just in palm oil but in other commodity crops as well and so how do we help them to again adopt best practices uh, in managing the peatland that they're on what are the rollback plans for moving them off of peat over time and how can we support them with alternative livelihood options we're exploring this through um, things like cropping a, a thing called moringa which is like a superfood like a protein additive that you can turn into a powder and put into your power shakes um, and seeing whether there is an opportunity to move people out of something like palm oil into something like moringa or other peat friendly crops uh, and that will be part of the solution but only one part
0: Okay and Cynthia over to you palm oil will the palm oil trade will be dead in 25 years
2: um, Well if we keep going on the premise that it would be due to peatland um, subsidence I think that that issue might pose a difficulty to the sector, but quite aside from that, uh, there being vast tracts of palm oil territory not developed on peat land, I think that probably climate change related droughts might pose a bigger challenge, uh, especially in terms of low yields, as we've seen in the past uh, El Nino cycles, for example. Um, I think that factors such as automation will also transform the business in many ways that we can't yet entirely um, you know, be sure of. Um, what does arise in the next 25 years, though, I would say, um, whatever does arise, it, the palm oil sector is so critical to Indonesia's rural economy that I really do believe the government will make every effort to ensure its viability. So be it Uh, through the Peatland Restoration Agency or other means. Um, Of course, I'd love to hear of an industry that will continue on in the next 25 years uh, without any major changes. Uh, So I think it's a a discussion for all sectors, to be honest, uh, to really look at that. Um, For those who want to really proactively equip themselves for such situations, it's worth noting um, that we, for example, do a range of futures exercises that help mitigate forthcoming challenges and leverage opportunities. Uh, So we're very happy to work with people in that. That regard. But in the Indonesian context, I really think that a lot of this will be led through the, the government and its policies uh, to facilitate a smooth transition into whatever is coming ahead.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much um, to both of you for joining us on the podcast. Now, concluding remarks, I wondered, based on the, what we've discussed, um, are there any concluding remarks that either you, you would like to make uh, around the perceptions around the palm oil trade? Um, I'll ask Anita that one first. Um, any points you'd like to make?
1: Well, I hope that what we've discussed here today demonstrates that palm oil and how it's produced and whether or not it's sustainable is not a black and white issue. There are shades of grey across all of the questions that we've discussed today, or all the myths that we've attempted to discuss and perhaps bust today. And it's really about putting palm oil in its appropriate context. So, Yes, palm oil can drive deforestation, but it can also protect forests and provide really meaningful incomes to smallholder farmers that make up 40% of production. Uh, It has real health giving properties, but like any vegetable oil, it needs to be part of a balanced diet. Um, There are challenges for every agribusiness in the next 25 years as we see the disruptive influence of climate change and the shifting nature of rainfall. We have to address soil nutrition. Uh, So hopefully what we've done today is give you a sense that palm oil shouldn't just be considered bad or shouldn't just be wearing the black hat. It needs to be part of a more balanced conversation around how we address things like labour in the agricultural workforce. How do we address uh, community and social needs and land tenure questions? How do we address deforestation globally and not just in isolated pockets? Because when we do that kind of narrow look, we tend to miss uh, things that are coming up in our peripheral vision. Uh, And we also tend to make, uh, decisions that have unintended consequences and uh, that could be worse than the solution in front of us. Palm oil still is the highest yielding vegetable oil per hectare. It has um, great health properties from a food and nutrition perspective. And if you ask smallholder farmers, it provides them an excellent source of income comparative to other options like rubber, coffee, cocoa, for example. So we need to find a balanced place for that conversation to happen about its future, and we need to also see it as part of the broader agribusiness uh, environment which we all live
0: in. Cynthia, any final thoughts from you?
2: Yes, I think that in the era of soundbites and polarised politics, I think it is easier to look for a uh, a scapegoat than it is to look for um, the whole story. Uh, and so I think that, in the spirit of it not being about a black or white narrative, it's it's really important to take a balanced approach uh, and that by no means am I trying to absolve the palm oil sector of any woos, I'm just saying that blanket bans, for example, are simply not helpful. Uh, They're just creating different problems. And so again, for people to really take kind of a systems approach, looking at the policies involved, looking at the broader uh, players and and market pressures and levers, um, I think this is really uh, critical to moving the sector forward.
0: And that is a great place for us to leave it. Thanks to you both, Anita Neville from Golden Agri Resources and Cynthia Morel from Forum for the Future. And thanks to you, dear listener, for joining us. Stay tuned for our next podcast. Have a great day.